diversity has a lot of benefits. The benefits revolve around things like more creative solutions, uh, more um, careful decision making in which lots of different avenues and issues are revealed and raised, but they have costs too. Welcome to There's a Better Way, a podcast series focused on exploring how operational excellence principles can provide solutions in your personal and professional life. Each episode, Dr. Arvind Chandrasekharan, professor and academic director at The Ohio State University, Fisher College of Business, will sit down with a prominent expert or faculty leader to discuss problems we all face in our world today. This program is brought to you by the Master of Business and Operational Excellence. Welcome to There is a Better Way. I'm here with uh, Dr. Stephanie Welk, uh, Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at the Fisher College of Business. Welcome to the program, Stephanie. Thanks, Arvind. So Stephanie, tell us more about yourself. So I wear several hats here. Um, As you mentioned, I am an Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion. I'm also a professor in the Management and Human Resources Department. My specialty is organizational behavior and human resources, particularly focusing on relationships at work. Uh, For the past, oh boy, I would say 15 to 17 years, I've studied individuals who work in call centers. I'm interested in commoditization of emotion as part of jobs where people have to be nice to people and also the relationships they build not only with their peers and their supervisors but also with customers and that's a great um, location and and, and kind of place to study that. It's a very nice way to actually bring our today's conversation because we're going to talk about diversity workplace. Tell us more about, again, there is so many definitions of diversity at workplace. How do you define diversity in a workplace environment? Anymore, I've tried to steer clear of the word diversity, and I think about who's underrepresented. Because when we think about diversity, I think people tend to think about the traditional categories of uh, race and gender. But it can be lots of different things. And so I always ask people what's not being represented at the table. So it could be race or gender. It could be um, socioeconomic status. It could be educational background. Um, so there's lots of different ways of thinking about it, and in, in any particular workplace, it could vary. So there is no one answer. So if we ask the question, what's underrepresented and what should be at the table, I think then you can kind of get at um, what's missing. So let me ask you this. Why do you think uh, diversity is important? So the research is pretty clear on this, that diversity has a lot of benefits. The benefits revolve around things like more creative solutions, uh, more um, careful decision making in which lots of different avenues and issues are revealed and raised. But they have costs too. And and I think the cost is what often gets in the way. First of all, people don't like it. So some of the early studies of diversity looked at something you and I are familiar with, which are teams of students. And when you force groups of students to be diverse, Mm. they will report, even though they have performed better than other groups, even though they've had more creative solutions or even have better grades, they'll say they didn't enjoy it. And part of that is because working with people that are not like us takes a little bit more effort and work. Sometimes there's more conflict. And I think people tend to think of conflict just generally as bad. So, uh, geez, I have to work with people that are different than I am. We potentially are going to disagree about stuff. That's going to be conflict. Boom. I'm not, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so there's so there's an uh, there's an attitude I think that that people struggle with. To so get clearly, over. again, like uh, avoiding conflict is could be one reason why people say I'm going to have a homogenous group. Yes. In my workplace environment. But it's also there's so I I've even done research on this on social networks that there's this 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 ingrained process of homophily, that we tend to be drawn to people that are like us. So even in our own social networks, 
um, the tendency is to have people in your network that look like you in some dimension, some set of dimensions. Mm. Um, and when I've looked at people who have very diverse networks, so for some reason these are individuals who've actually chosen it outside of work, they will also build those diverse networks actually inside the workplace. And one of the things I found with um, a, a former PhD student here, Aaron Macarius, um, is that when we build our networks ourselves, we're not forced to. So we're not put on teams. That's what a lot of organizations will do. They say, oh, I hear, you know, here's Professor Wilk talking about how there's great benefits to having diversity. Great, then I'm going to build all my teams and make sure that I have one woman and one person that's international and one person of color and one. That doesn't work. Mm. Um, and so what you want is you want people to kind of build those networks more naturally. Mm. And when they do, when it's their choice, there tends to be not those negatives, not the feeling of I worked with people I didn't want to work with or I, I worked with people that I, I, I had to work with. And so that there's there's benefits there and I think that um, when we try to force it it doesn't work as well moreover um, the research on this idea of picking one mm -hmm. like one of something mm -hmm. is um, really really clear um, boards of directors is a really great example mm -hmm. so you have one woman on um, a, a, a board and you say great we've diversified but we know that the value of that different opinion or different viewpoint um, doesn't come out until we have critical mass. So sure. not not one woman, and sometimes not even two, but three mm. on a 12-person board, for example, that you have to have more than one um, to really get the those typically underrepresented viewpoints heard. Okay. So the reason why I'm asking you this is, again, um, from a standpoint of the chicken versus egg story, mm. right? So if there are people who want to have a diverse group, and those decisions are often made by a homogenous group. Mm -hmm. There's a big barrier in making that decision, right? So that's the main reason. Like, I was reading uh, an article uh, about Amazon trying to uh, be more diverse in their workforce mm -hmm. and saying that, okay, we've got to now uh, hire new people, more uh, backgrounds, not just gender, different socioeconomic status. And they ended up actually uh, looking at uh, millions of uh, CVs. And then they ended up finding CVs that are more homogenous. It was not diverse at all. Mm -hmm. Because the people who were making decisions inside Amazon mm -hmm. were looking at it based on what works in Amazon. And what worked in Amazon was these kind of people who are not diverse mm -hmm. in the first place. How do you know it's the chicken versus egg story? Yeah, right? How do you actually manage It's really that? hard. And, and I think that underlying all of that goes back to this idea of homophily. It's almost mm. implicit bias. Mm. So it's very hard to break that. And even when people become aware, awareness is step one of implicit bias. Hey, listen, we've ended up with a workforce that's pretty homogenous. We don't want it. Mm. What do we do? And then we have to really break the patterns. And what you don't realize is how much that tendency has been built into every decision we make. Even the way we describe a job, even in the job descriptions themselves, mm. we can be signaling to people in, in um, the, the applicant pool who we want and who we don't want. Mm. So you can actually, you can see it in all these little mini micro steps. Mm. And so even when you have this kind of kind of macro view, hey, we want more diversity, you really have to drill down and look at it at every single step in the process. So I'll give you an example here yeah. at, um, at Fisher. So one of the things we wanted to do was to diversify our faculty. We want to represent, we want to look like our, our student body. Students. And so what we decided to do is really focus on pools and to make sure that we had adequate diversity in every pool as we were um, going through the process. And so what we did is we built into our selection processes 
people that have been um, trained to be diversity advocates. And so they will sit on those search committees and will look at each step in the process to make sure that at these little micro stages mm -hmm. that we aren't biasing um, the pool and that we're making sure that we have the most diverse group possible. And also, you know, you start, you need somebody who, who will just question, just like your, your Google example um, or Amazon example, that you want people, both of those actually are struggling with this issue. You want people who will say, why? Hmm. Why is it important that we have somebody that has this set of criteria or this set of experiences? Because often those sets of experiences have been biased way, way back, sure. right? So, oh, we want someone who has a PhD from Stanford in this particular domain but maybe there's bias already back in that process too yeah. that made it hard for certain people to get into those programs or get mentored by certain yeah. people. So you just got to ask why a why? lot. This is good because, Stefan, let me ask you, I, I can push you a little bit here and get your thoughts yeah, yeah. on it. Because uh, you just mentioned about a great example at Fisher where you said like um, we have now assigned or dedicated um, people who have been trained in this idea of diversity and inclusion and they are uh, kind of gatekeepers helping to They're make the sure. Eyes. They're yeah. the eyes. But like what happens is on the other side, this gives the perception to the the the, uh, the employees here that there is a, a point of contact when everybody should be aware of that. Everybody should be a part of this whole idea of diversity and inclusion. Sometimes don't you think that that, that takes you to the next step saying, okay, we have one person in my company that is responsible for diversity and inclusion. No, you don't want that. I mean, I think that's why I wanted kind of a team of diversity advocates, people who voluntarily said, this is important to me too. Mm -hmm. Because I think you, you can absolutely get into that where you'd say, oh, I have somebody who's responsible for that, that person. It's like I teach, when I teach management of people, mm. um, and I, I teach a class on strategic management of, of people, and I say, that, you know, managing people is not one department's job. Yeah. It's every single person's job. And this is true for diversity too, particularly because diversity is more than diversity. Mm. It's inclusion. And so when you start to think about it that way, it's about making sure that the workplace allows, it, it creates a setting in which all viewpoints are heard, even ones you don't want to hear yeah. at that moment, but that will push you to have a more complete answer or a complete solution to a problem. And so, you know, just like, you know, I know you do work in lean production, the idea of making sure that there are huddles, that there are people in that space that have um, a platform or a form in which to communicate and talk. Mm. A lot of making sure you have an inclusive environment is not just I've gotten the people in box checked, sure. but I'm actually hearing from them. Mm. Because if you get diverse a diverse workforce and you think you've checked the box, you probably have a lot further to go. Yeah, and I agree with you. Again, going back to what you just said, in operational excellence, we talk about this whole idea of people at the front line mm. are really owning problems and making sure that they're responsible. And what we have seen increasingly is having a diverse group of people owning the problems. They're able to better articulate what the customers want because the customers are completely heterogeneous. Absolutely. And having a diverse group helps a lot. I want to go back to the point that you mentioned uh, earlier, Stephanie, about this idea of implicit bias. Yes. We all have implicit bias in what we make uh, when we make decisions. Can we can you give me an example of what an implicit bias would be? Oh, I absolutely can. I'll do it. I'll do it on myself because I think people tend to think implicit bias exists in white males. Hmm. That's absolutely not true. Every single person carries implicit biases even against our own quote-unquote group. Hmm. So, I'll give you an example. Um, I lived in Philadelphia. Uh, I had a neighborhood in which we did a lot of neighborhood um, like gatherings and parties. The first one I went to, there was a woman there. Her kids were kind of climbing all over her. I said to her, which I thought was being very PC, I said, do you work outside the home? Hmm. 
And she looked up after juggling one of her kids and said, I run the emergency department at Children's Hospital of the University of oh Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I went, okay, yeah. there's my bias. Yeah. Um, when we ask somebody who helps somebody on an airplane and says, I'm a doctor, and because you don't, quote, look like a doctor mm. for credentials True. or question them, that's implicit bias too. Yeah. Um, and it also leads to these microaggressions, these, hey, can I ask your credentials? Can I ask you who you are? Mm. Um, for example, when I was a young faculty member at Wharton, I can't tell you the number of times that people would knock on the door. I would literally be sitting behind my desk and they would say, let me know when Professor Wilk is in. Okay. And I would be like, really? I mean, I'm here. Yeah. I'm sitting behind the desk. Yeah. But they couldn't put that together. And so it happens to me and it happens, I see it in my own reactions to things. So I think being aware of what implicit biases are and, and understanding that it's not intent. There's no blame. Mm -hmm. It's just about being aware that for whatever reason, we tend to kind of gravitate or have underlying impressions sure. of people, we, we immediately, cognitively, quickly mm. kind of group people that we have to be very thoughtful about that mm. and, and think outside the box. And, and part of the way to break some of that, and, and by the way, our Kerwin Institute here at OSU is phenomenal and on the cutting edge of doing a lot of this implicit bias research. Yeah. But some of the ways to do that is to really build that diverse network. So after doing my own research on diverse networks, I make a point of when I walk into a room of strangers and my natural inclination is to gravitate and go sit near somebody that kind of looks like me, I go to the person that looks least like me. Okay. And I talk to them and I get to know them because what you do is you end up, you find commonalities sure. and then those stereotyping kind of quick um, cognitive processes start to break down and you say to yourself, I can't immediately judge somebody in one way or another. And that happens all the time in organizations, right? Um, you see somebody and you assume that they're the person's help rather than the person. Mm -hmm. Or you, you know, oh, you must be the admin versus you're the person that's making the decision. Mm -hmm. Or when, you know, I, I've seen it many times myself. You know, I walk into the front of a classroom and you can immediately see people. I've, I've had people ask me, raise their hand and say, how old are you? Mm -hmm. Or, okay. um, you know, what is your background? Sure. And, and, and so how we deal with those is also really important because I think sometimes people are generally curious. Okay. And some are trying to suss out. And I usually, when I get asked about that stuff, I immediately just have that person stop and think, mm. why are you asking me this? Sure. What is it you're trying to say? Um, you know, what is it, what is the implication of what you're saying? Mm. And I just ask them to articulate a little bit further because once you start to articulate those, those, those thoughts, mm. you start to realize that sometimes they don't make sense. Okay. It's, so our listeners, for instance, who are listening to our podcast, Everybody might have certain aspects of implicit. Everyone does. There, it's not. It's not. And, and, and the people that say to me, "Oh, I don't have any." There's <laughs> a problem laugh, out there. Yeah. Right. Right. And a great way to find out um, is the Harvard has a website. It's called the Implicit Association Test, the IAT. Okay. You, free. Go on. They have a bunch of them. They used to have a very few number. Now they've been building and building and building them on sure. all kinds of different biases against all kinds of different things. Um, go take a few. I mean, I've made my kids take them hmm. and and had them really think about it because no matter how you know you're raised, I think that they that you just whatever. I mean, sure. societal pressure, other kinds of things. You you we just build these little biases in in our decision making, and we need to break them. Yeah. So let me ask you, Stephen. There's a there should be a better way of managing these things mm. as organizations. Should be. There should be. Right. What do you think? I mean, like one of the things I see from our conversation is actually clearly the hiring process should be much more. Uh, 
yeah, sophisticated in a way that yes. you are encouraging diversity. Sure. Let's talk about once you have hired, uh, yeah. you still now have uh, uh, a That's set of employees, right? How are you going to manage them? Well, I think that what a lot of organizations do is they assume that once they have a certain kind of number, that it's done, check. Hmm. And I'll give you an example of gender, something I've, I've studied a little bit more than some of the other characteristics. But uh, there's so many organizations in which when you look at the bottom rung of an organization, it's about 50-50. This hmm. is where organizations say, look, we've hired half of them are women, half of them are men, or whatever domain or industry, et cetera. But as you look up the chain, the numbers changed really dramatically. Hmm. and and I think that what organizations need to do is realize it doesn't stop upon hire. That mm. that's when the real work begins. Sure. And that means changing the way we think or reward people. Um, and, it, it, and, and this is where it's so insidious because implicit biases occur in these super subtle ways. I'll give you an example of um, research of one of my colleagues here, Bob Lount. Um, it's one of my favorite studies of Bob's. He did a study in which he took two diverse um, or he took two teams, one that was homogenous and one that was diverse. Mm -hmm. And he gave uh, people in a lab uh, a transcript of the discussion of the team in which there was conflict. But no more regular, I mean, it was sure. exactly the same, same conflict. conflict. But when people knew that it was a diverse team, they rated the conflict much, much more problematic okay. than when it was in the homogenous team. So he's done this, so he did it in writing. Then he said, well, maybe I need to have audio. Mm. So I'll do some audio examples, et cetera. So he does it in that. He does all kinds of variations on it. It happens every single time. The perceiver perceives the conflict as worse. Now here's where it really gets, where the rubber meets the road. In his last set of experiments, he did this with managers, mm. with executives and managers, and asked them, which team would you support with they were building they were they were actually discussing a project and um, it was pretty clear that they wouldn't support the diverse team because they were concerned about the quote level of conflict even though the conflict in both teams was identical hmm. so when people got the um, homogenous team as an example they were more likely to support it when they got the um, heterogeneous team they didn't and so when we think about organizations and how that can play out there's there's groups that won't get support hmm. there's groups that won't get um, uh, maybe the right kinds of opportunities, the ad hoc committee that leads to the new opportunity that leads to the this. And so I think what a lot of organizations forget about is once they are in the door, we need to be very vigilant and careful and have um, really be watching those numbers throughout the organization and, and really trying to understand what's what's the cause, what's, yeah. what's the underlying cause. Because I think it's really easy to say, oh, well, the reason we don't have women at the top is because, well, they quit. But why do they quit? <laughs> is there a reason? Sure. Is there a reason that um, that women are opting out, for yeah. example? So, so again, going back to that, like the cost, right? I'm, I'm curious to learn. Um, are there are there things that the organizations can do? Like, for instance, I'll give you one example. Yeah. There was uh, a big issue, uh, and this is again very well known uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, when uh, uh, Dr. Merlino uh, became the CEO at Cleveland Clinic. He had some big issues, uh, the, the teams there providing care, they had some uh, issues taking care of diversity. So you had, uh, and in this case, diversity was like in different functions. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, yep. physicians, you have the nurses, and, and sometimes, again, the, the person who wears the longest uh, coat is the bigger decision maker. 
oftentimes the nurses might have important decisions that could help during the delivery of care. So what uh, Merlino did is, uh, uh, it's not Merlino, it's Toby Coscrow. What Dr. Coscrow did was basically go back and say, I've got to avoid these kind of um, uh, issues with respect to diversity. So he instituted a program there, and I believe it's running right now. It's called the Patient Empathy Program. And what he did was he brought everybody together and he said, uh, we are no longer a physician or a nurse or a, a pharmacist or a social worker. We are all called as caregivers. Let's make sure that we are all uh, having one thing. So mm -hmm. it was tough. Uh, uh, Dr. Cosborough talks about it in his book. It was tough for him to do that. But that, again, as a strong signal coming from the CEO That's of, absolutely of the right. Cleveland Clinic, help them really understand that diversity is important and we've got to embrace. So even the cook who's delivering uh, the food is a caregiver. Is a caregiver. That's and, absolutely right. And, and I'm, I'm trying to see, are there things that so, organizations So a couple do? things in your example. One, as you noted, it's it comes from the top. Yeah. So it has to be something that the top um, person or persons more importantly, believe in and support, and not just with words, that there's action behind it. Mm. And by creating this, in what you're describing is this environment of, of kind of a flattening of a hierarchy, yeah. so that all voices are valued, that is where you can really start to see the, the benefit. I find in organizations that what usually gets people really excited about it is by seeing the value on the back end. Okay. So, hey, let's you know, I'll even tell organizations, let's run an experiment mm. where you really look at a more holistic set of criteria to hire, or you're looking at something, you're, you're, you're really, or, or maybe you naturally just happen to have a more diverse group. Let's play it out. Let's mm. see if they actually can solve a problem faster, better, um, or more efficient, you know, more effectively. Sure. And if so, then start sending that signal and, and showing people that there is value in it. Mm. I mean, you're never going to change everybody's mindset, right? Sure. But what you can do is you can you can make it something that's an easier path for people to sure. want to go down and to support. Yeah. And so by showing, hey, look, patient care is going to be better if, mm. and actually starting to and, and share that data, make it really transparent, okay. then I think that you can really move people's minds in, yeah. in that way. So what you mentioned is very interesting, Stephanie, is because not just having um, the leader being there, but putting together a good process, yes, putting to have uh, absolutely measuring those outcomes to say, okay, here is a reason why you've got to have a diverse group. You got it. Could be a, a good first step for a lot of organizations. I want to ask you one more question about the diversity. You mentioned diversity could be several fronts, right? lots of different things. So tell me, like from a workforce standpoint, again going back to uh, the, the workplace, where do you think we have underrepresentation? Uh, this is uh, mm. often something that I wonder. Is it uh, the gender? Is it the So this race? is where I'm going to shake my head and say I'm not going to answer that okay. because back to my opening, underrepresentation looks different in all groups. So, for example, when I'm talking to my counterpart over nursing, mm -hmm. their issue is men. They need more men faculty. They want more men represented. Their student body is becoming more diverse. They want a different group. So again, it's back to what is not there. And I think that's hard, that that absence, the looking yeah. for the absence. But if you start to really get into the to the groove of that, of saying, okay, I'm looking around the table, what's not here? And looking more broadly. So is it gender? It could be race, but it could be 
we're all engineers and mm. we need to have somebody that's different. We all come from a very particular set of educational backgrounds. Mm. Maybe we need to be looking at from someone who comes from a different kind of angle and background sure. that would bring something different. And also, as you said, going back and, and, and switching the switching the equation and saying, who are, who do we serve? Yeah. Let's get a picture of those folks. Are, are we representing those? I mean, that's what we did here at Fisher. Like, let's look at our student body. Let's mm. look at the population of the state of Ohio. Are we representing that group yeah. fully? And we're not there. And yeah. and a lot of organizations are not there either. And so, but the issue is, is that you've got to plug away at this problem over and over and over again. Sure. So I think that's a big a big piece of it. But process is important, and messaging is important. But it also, you know, for me, I've seen so many CEOs talk a good talk. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really move the needle until you really get that inclusion element, and that inclusion really means everybody all the way top to bottom really buying into the value of it. Yeah, and I think my one in very important takeaway from this conversation, Stephanie, is this idea of if you really want to think about diversity, look, not just look within the organization, but look outside. Absolutely. And then look at your customers. Absolutely. And, and again, if you don't really have, if you have a diverse group of customers, which we all have, I, mean, yep. I can't think of a single organization where you have a homogenous group, that really reinforces why you need to have a diverse work place and work, work environment. So this has been very helpful, Stephanie. Thank you so much for Thank you. Thanks there. for having me. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of There's a Better Way. To listen to our other episodes and for more information on the Master of Business and Operational Excellence, please visit go.osu.edu backslash M-B-O-E.